But what we see is during times of stress, aggression increases. Displacement aggression onto somebody you could dump on increases, and that certainly explains a lot of family dynamics. You're listening to the Mindful Parenting Podcast, episode number 451. Today, we're talking about behavior mysteries solved with Robert Sapolsky. Welcome to the Mindful Parenting Podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Parenting, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, and when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark-Fields. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 25 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting course, and I'm the author of the international bestseller, Raising Good Humans, and now Raising Good Humans Every Day, 50 Simple Ways to Press Pause, Stay Present, and Connect with Your Kids. Hello, hello, welcome. So glad you're here. So grateful that you are here on the Mindful Parenting Podcast. Listen, if you have ever gotten value from this podcast, please do me a favor. Help the show grow by just telling one friend about it. You can make a big difference, and I really hugely appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. In just a moment, I'm going to be sitting down with Robert M. Sapolsky. This is a real treat. He is the author of several works of nonfiction, including A Primate's Memoir, The Trouble with Testosterone, and Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. You'll hear me talk about why this is a special book for me. Um, And his most recent book, Behave, was a New York Times bestseller and named Best Book of the Year by the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. He's a professor of biology and neurology at Stanford University and a recipient of the MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant. He is so cool. You are going to learn so much about human behavior today that your mind will just be blown. It's This is a really fascinating episode. I feel really honored that Robert chose to talk to me for the podcast. And you, my friend, are in for a treat. So join me at the table as I talk to Robert Sapolsky. The April 20th Mindful Parenting Retreat Day is filling up fast. Join me and other parents in Wilmington, Delaware for a day of rest and relaxation, mindfulness and mindful communication practices, and a live podcast, too. And my special guest for the live podcast is, drumroll please, Lynetta Willis. You know her from episode 366 and 400. She is a psychologist and sought-after speaker who teaches her Triggered to Transformed program to struggling parents. Join us and bring a friend to this powerful day-long retreat in Wilmington, Delaware on April 20th, 2024. But hurry, space is limited. Go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash retreat to get your spot now. That's mindfulmamamentor.com slash retreat. Robert, thank you so much for coming on the Mindful Parenting Podcast. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm thrilled that you're here. And um, like I was saying, it's it's interesting to talk to you because I have given talks around the world about how to stop yelling. And I, and I show a slide of your book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. So I know we're not here to talk about why zebras don't get ulcers, but I, I love the title of that book. 
Can you just tell us a little bit about the premise of that book before we dive into everything else? Well, it's subtitle. Actually, I don't even remember what the subtitle <laughs> is anymore, but it's something like a guide to stress, uh, stress-related diseases and coping. Um, and its basic theme is that we are just like every other vertebrate on Earth um, in that when we get stressed, we secrete the same stress hormones as every other species out there, the identical thing. And then we are unlike any other species on Earth in that we turn on the stress response for totally bizarre reasons. If you're your basic animal who's being stressed, either somebody is very intent on eating you or you're very intent on eating somebody and everything that you're doing in your body makes like total sense for the next few minutes. You mobilize energy to your bloodstream to hand over to whichever muscles are going to save your life. You increase your heart rate, your blood pressure, your breathing rate. You turn off everything in your body that is not essential. You turn off growth, digestion, reproduction, all of that. You enhance your immune defenses and you think more clearly. Your sensory thresholds get sharper. You get this flashbulb memory thing. And all of that makes perfect sense if you are avoiding a predator. And that's what's been done for 99% of vertebrate history. And then along come us and us other socially sophisticated primates, where we suddenly have the capacity to generate chronic psychological stress. And what you see there is why we get into trouble. Because, you know, increase your blood pressure for 30 seconds running for your life, and that's a great thing. Increase it every single day because the traffic jams and you're going to suffer from high blood pressure. And that winds up being sort of the, the starting point for everything about why we humans are so vulnerable to stress-related disease. We turn on this ancient circuitry that's meant for dealing with a short-term problem, and we do it chronically. And if you do it chronically, you're going to get sick. Yeah, you're going to get sick and you're going to yell at your kids. That's uh, that my too. premise. <laughs> yeah, you know, yes. like, because our kids, our, our nervous system sees our kids as a threat in that situation. I think it's kind of funny. I mean, I guess my, like, when I give this talk and I use your book, my argument is that we don't, no one's choosing to yell at their kids, which is kind of interesting considering your latest book, actually, like, no, no, it's not a choice we make it yet where we're so hard on ourselves. We shame and blame ourselves. It's our, it's something we're kind of responsible for, but it's not actually like no one said, uh, you know, oh, I think I'm just going to scream at Sophie at two o'clock. Right. Like, so I don't exactly. know. Exactly. <laughs> and, and what that's tapping into is like one of the most reliable things, you know, when you're stressed, there's a variety of coping mechanisms. You could try to get social support. You could try to get a sense of control or predictability, all of that. But if you're your basic social animal, one of the most reliable stress-reducing things out there is to displace aggression on someone who is smaller and weaker. And that does wonders if you were a low-ranking baboon, if you were a lab rat, or if you're a stressed human. And unfortunately, displacing aggression is a pretty effective way of reducing stress. You sure are making that much more stress for everybody who is stuck around you. Um, but say among baboons, for example, 
more than half of aggression is displacement aggression. You know, number two gets trounced by number one in a fight and he spins around and he bites number eight and number eight, who then goes and chases a female who slaps a juvenile, who knocks an infant out of a tree all in 30 seconds. And that winds up being a very good way of reducing stress. And that gives you one of those like basic sort of sound bites of stress management. Don't avoid ulcers by giving ulcers to everybody who is stuck around you. But what we see is during times of stress, aggression increases. Displacement aggression onto somebody you could dump on increases. And that certainly explains a lot of family dynamics. Yeah, yeah. Why big brother is whacking little brother and and probably a lot of parental aggression with our kids. Like it's it could be displacement aggression in some ways, I guess. Absolutely. And why you see that during periods of economic downturn, rates of spousal abuse increase, things of that sort. Even this this is a study that is like crazy in terms of its implications. Um, but you look at very fanatic football fans and in the afternoon after their home team loses their rates of spousal abuse and child abuse go up yeah so this is exactly why i wanted to bring you on the podcast it may have seemed like an odd fit in some ways to talk about human behavior and and of course your latest book is about is called determined the science of life without free will but I think it's so. Uh, I think it is so helpful for us to understand sort of the roots uh, of our behavior, so that we can have some chance of being able to modify, change it, make it, uh, you know, cultivate a little more calm and peace and and goodwill and all of those good things in our life. We need to kind of understand the biology and the roots and all of these things of what we're dealing with. And I'm just curious about you, like you're a generalist, as one would say, like as somebody, as a scientist, like looking at so many different things. Um, what made you interested in the roots of human behavior? I mean, I guess you're kind of interested in the roots of many primates' behavior in some ways. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, actually, my, my first love is uh, mountain gorillas, and I was very young eight or so when I decided I was going to go off and study mountain gorillas in Central Africa. And that's how I was going to spend my time. But, you know, reality intrudes and everybody can't go and study mountain gorillas. And I wound up studying baboons instead um, in East Africa for more than 30 summers. And, you know, when you look at that and what I focused on is uh, what does your social rank, what does your personality have to do with your patterns of stress? related disease among these baboons. Um, and when you look at them, you know, you kind of get pulled back to humans after a while and all that human behavior begins to be kind of interesting again, because of the ways in which we are just like every other primate out there until you look closely and then we are completely unique. Um, so, you know, of necessity kind of wandering back into thinking about human behavior at some point. Did you see parallels to your own behavior? Um, absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that was clear to me, you know, over over the years with uh, 
my baboons, I focused on studying adult males, and there were a bunch of reasons for this. Um, but nonetheless, you see a whole lot of like infant stuff going on and maternal behavior. And you come away from that and you say, wow, like, okay, so I know all about primate parenting now, and this is just going to be great. And then my wife and I have our first child and sort of like two months into it, the first time he was playing with some object and looking at it. And you could see as he was doing this, like new neuronal connections being formed and like schemes going on into his head about what objects are for. And you realize at that point, all of this like experience of looking at baboon parenting has prepared me exactly zero for being competent <laughs> at this. Um, so that's, that's about as far as it, it took me with uh, that in any way generalizing to my own personal parenting behaviors. Well, in, in Behave, you, you know, your book about the biology of humans at our best and our worst, it, it's, it's great. I, I love this book. It's, it's very detailed, dear listener. Very, very detailed about the brain. But you talk about why, a lot of these reasons why people behave as we do. And one of the things that we talk about here, of course, is like helping people to sort of shout less at their kids. And you talk about, can you talk a little bit about this? Like, why do we have this aggression at our kids? And, and I, you've, in the book, you talk about hormone levels, traumas, childhood, culture, prenatal environment. Like, there's a lot of things... I think I kind of want to get at like there's all these things that are in some ways beyond our control and some things that we can have some influence on. But but maybe you could dive into that for me if you don't mind. Well, it's one of those you you look at a behavior and in this case, a parenting behavior for better or worse. And you wonder why this person just yelled at their kid. Um, and, you know, what you're asking is what went on in their brain a second ago? But you're also asking sort of what sensory stimuli in the previous minutes helped trigger that. Is the person tired or are they scared or are they stressed? Or are they happy or are they hungry? Because all of those things turn out to affect behavior in a very short time span. But you're also asking what did the person's hormone levels this morning have to do with that behavior? Because those were influencing how sensitive the brain was to this or that stimuli. But you're also asking what was going on in the previous months to decades in terms of trauma, wonderful events, all because that will have changed the function of the brain during that time. And then you're back to adolescence and childhood and fetal life, where obviously the main thing you were doing there is constructing the brain and thus what kind of brain you're going to have at that moment where it's being determined whether you're going to yell at somebody or not. And then you got to get into genes and then you got to get into culture because the sort of culture your ancestors were inventing centuries ago and the sort of ecosystems that made some types of cultures more likely to form than others influenced parenting style. And if you were raised in a collectivist culture, like you see in Southeast Asian like rice farming communities, or if you were raised in an individualist culture like the middle of Manhattan, your parenting styles are going to be different within minutes of your child being born. If you were raising a child in a quote, culture of honor, which you see among nomadic pastoralists, and for some totally bizarre reasons, wind up being common in the American South, 
You teach your kids something very, very different from turn the other cheek. You teach them if they like afflict you, return with 10 times the vengeance because that's the sort of culture you have developed around that. So even culture developed over centuries matters. Why did that person do that behavior? Because of everything that went on from one second ago to thousands of years of cultural evolution. And all of that winds up being relevant to making sense of why somebody does what they do. Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcasts right after this break. You know, some healthy skepticism in my life has served me well. And if you're like that, if you can spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from about a mile away, you read labels like it's your job, congratulations, you're a skeptic. And Ritual knows that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. I take Ritual's Essentials for Women 18 Plus every single day, morning and at lunch. And I am feeling great. I love this vitamin. Ritual's Essentials for Women is USP verified, so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. Plus, Ritual Vitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project verified, gluten and major allergen-free, certified B Corp, and made traceable. They select lower carbon packaging, they prioritize sustainably sourced ingredients, and set ambitious climate goals. Plus, Ritual is a female-founded B Corp, which means they are responsible to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash mindful. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash mindful for 25% off. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. There's a lot there. And and we talked to, like, one of the things you just mentioned there is the individualist cultures versus collectivist cultures. This can, and this can influence how often moms sing to their babies, right? And how often babies cry. I think this is really interesting because a lot of sense people are we're influenced in some ways like especially in sort of the parenting world you know we're we're told to kind of 
take what someone deems as the best from one culture, but it may not be your own. And it, it may not be, um, it may, it may be that, you know, genetically or culturally, you're, you're more inclined to one other thing. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the details of those differences? Maybe if you had ancestors of a collectivist culture versus an individualist culture? Well, you see totally fascinating differences on lots of different levels. Um, Here's here's one example, and I love this one. You sit somebody down um, from a collectivist culture, and you find them all over the world. But the bulk of the research has been done in Southeast Asia, uh, sort of agriculturalist. You sit them down, you put them in a brain scanner, and you show them pictures of various people, and you show the person a picture of themselves. And there's this one part of the frontal cortex that activates, and show them some more pictures, and show them a picture of their mother. And the same part of the frontal cortex activates. Okay, so collectivist culture, this part of the brain is responding to both pictures of you and your mother. Now you take someone from an individualist culture from the middle of Manhattan and stick them in the brain scanner and show them pictures and show them pictures of themselves. And that same part of the frontal cortex activates. And then get around to showing them a picture of their mother and it doesn't activate. People from collectivist cultures, this part of the brain, you don't distinguish between yourself and your immediate family members. Mm. People from the center of Manhattan completely distinguish between the two. Or you ask somebody to draw it's something sociologists call this a sociogram, like sit down and draw like sort of this diagram of you and the people who matter to you, like draw a circle of yourself here and everybody else who matters and how big the arrows are and all of that. And you get somebody from individualist culture and what they do is they draw me right in the middle with a circle that's going to be bigger than any of the others and then the connections to all the others there. And you get somebody from a collectivist culture and me is the same size or even smaller than all the other circles. It's not necessarily in the center. And these are very different ways of thinking about the world and the meaning of social networks. You take somebody from an individualist culture and you say, well, well, tell me about yourself. And they'll say, well, I'm a software engineer. And you take someone from a collectivist culture and ask them the same thing. And they'll say, well, I'm a, I'm a mother, I'm a, I'm a grandchild, I'm a something that is transactional within the context of social relations versus what you do for a living and all mm -hmm. sorts of stuff like that. One, one classic study, I love this one, looking at collectivist versus uh, individualist culture people and taking advantage of that convenience that there's now Starbucks all over the planet. And what they did in the study is they went into a Starbucks and they would take two chairs and place them back to back, blocking the way between two tables. And in comes your study subject and they come up to their pathway being blocked. And the question is, do you walk around the tables and avoid this? Or do you go in and you separate the two chairs and you take charge of the situation and you... Oh, I think I know what I would do. Can I yeah. share? Sure. Yeah. I think I think I would just move the chairs. And yeah. that's exactly the most common thing you see in people from individualist cultures. You <laughs> go in and you show agency and you like cut the Gordian knot there and you part the Red Sea and you move the chairs. And people from collectivist cultures, on the average, walk around the table instead. 
This stuff is permeating everything. And this is enormously interesting. You take a picture, a picture of a complex scene with a bunch of people and an obvious sort of central character in the picture, and you get somebody from an individualist culture, and in a fraction of a second, where their eyes go is look at the person in the center of the picture. And somebody from a collectivist culture, and in a fraction of a second, they scan the perimeter of the picture. And this is unconsciously what your eye muscles are doing in under a second's time, reflecting the values of your culture that you were raised with, starting from when you were a couple of minutes old. So this stuff really, really gets in there in all sorts of ways. And and it changes the way uh, mother's mother, right? Absolutely. Your likelihood of punishment. Uh, on the average, how many seconds does a child cry before they are picked up by someone? On the average, at what age is a child weaned if they're nursed at all? At what age does a child start sleeping alone from their mother versus you know, and exactly what you would expect, westernized individualist cultures, a longer lag before you respond to a crawling child, earlier age at which they are weaned, earlier age at which they are sleeping alone. And what do you do when you're training somebody to be individualistic and self-soothing and all that kind of stuff? And that's a very different world from your mother's face and your face is processed exactly the same in the same part of the brain. This is starting very early in life, teaching very different messages about what kind of brain do you need to be forming to be successful in this culture that you're growing up in. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, the idea of like that, you know, it's unconscious, you know, how long it might take before we pick up our babies or, you know, all of these things. And and it's in the idea of that, like kind of going back to, you know, in a collectivist culture, one of the ideas that I noticed in the book was that this idea that a collectivist culture, you know, may be just because there was rice production and you have to cooperate to be to develop rice and to, you know, flood rice fields and do all the things it takes to develop rice versus like if you're uh, a herder of sheep or something, then you're pretty individual. You're kind of. Yeah. It's it's fascinating. Like not only neurons and genes and hormones, but like ecosystems. People mm. who grow up in rainforests are more likely to invent polytheistic religions. People who grow up in deserts are more likely to become monotheists. Yeah, even ecology <laughs> winds up being relevant to this stuff. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's like the the things that uh have shaped us that we don't even, you know, imagine and how the brain is constructed. But one of the things that's also fascinating um in your books is talking about the idea of the the brain and how it's developed and in some of the ways that um some of the unfairnesses to be frank about how the the brain is developed when you're looking at brain scans of you you talk in the in determined about the stunted maturation of the frontal cortex in kindergartners and how they can how researchers can tell from the maturation of the frontal cortex what kind of socioeconomic status a child may have grown up in tell us yeah, a little bit this about this is this outrageous thing um 
probably the most interesting part of the brain is the frontal cortex. We've got more of it than any other species. It's the most recently evolved. It's the slowest developing part of the brain in us. It's totally amazing. What does it do? Impulse control and emotion regulation and long-term planning. And like, you don't get much of a frontal cortex until like late adolescence, early adulthood, but nonetheless, it's developing all along the way. And the fact that like a kid doesn't have a very developed frontal cortex explains like kid-like behaviors and impulsive stuff. Like there was this one time our, our then like four-year-old son did something crummy to our two-year-old daughter. And my wife and I swept in there and we're telling him you're not a bad person, but that was a bad thing and wailing on him and with that whole thing. And at some point, like one of us, my wife or I would say to the other, why are we, why are we getting on him about this? He has like no frontal cortex and we're, we're both neuroscientists. So we actually talk <laughs> that way at home. And then the other one would say, well, how else is he going to develop a strong frontal cortex? It's this really important part of the brain yeah. that is very dependent on what kind of cues you're getting around you as to what sort of world it is. And one of the things that turns out is look at kids by the time they're five years old and the socioeconomic status of the family they chose to get born into is already a predictor of their resting stress hormone levels, elevated levels for poorer kids on the average, and elevated levels blunt the maturation of the prefrontal cortex. And thus by age five, you have a kid already simply because they are being raised in poverty they are likely to have a frontal cortex that's maturing slower than average and is thinner than average and has a lower metabolic rate than average and is already having a harder time than average and doing the more self-disciplined thing. And that's a finding that's been around for a decade or so now. And in the years since, look at a two-year-old and socioeconomic status is already having its mark. And look at a four-week-old, and it's already having its mark. And in a paper published last year, people were using this really fancy neuroimaging technique where you could look at the fetal brain, and the socioeconomic status of the mother is already having an impact on the rate of brain growth in their fetus. Like, you were born, and already something as uncontrolled as, like, what, you know, rung on the ladder of society you happen to get tossed into by chance is already influencing the development of this really important part of your brain. And what is it that is preventing that full development is making it less when we we're thinking about the the stressors of poverty? It, you know, do you can we tell exactly what it is that is hindering that development? Well, people have actually spent a lot of effort trying to dissect this and the large issue of why is it that poverty predicts like every aspect of poor health you can look at and shorter life expectancy and things of that sort. And like obvious things, ooh, poor people can't afford to go to the doctor. Um, that's not the explanation because hmm. you see the same quote, socioeconomic health gradient, the poorer you are, the worse your health is on the average. You see in a country with universal health care and socialized medicine, oh, okay, so it must be that, uh, you know, lower, you know, poor people have 
less access to good, healthy, protective factors like a good health club membership, and they're exposed to more risk factors. They're more likely to be having pollutants in their drinking water than the folks in the gated community. All that accounts for only like a third of the variability. What it is, is that low socioeconomic status equals sustained chronic psychological stress, lack of control, lack of predictability, lack of social support because you and everyone you know are working three jobs and you're exhausted by the time you come home, lack of outlets. You can't decide to take a break from work for a few months and go like walk on the beach for a season in order to get your head clear. You don't have any of those opportunities. And those are all the driving forces on chronically activating a stress response. And when you chronically activate it, when you are chronically secreting too much of this hormone called cortisol, it does all sorts of stuff in your brain, including make your frontal cortex less capable of regulating your social behavior, makes your memory worse, makes you more prone towards anxiety and depression, makes you less capable in your judgments and your executive decisions, and really interestingly, makes you much narrower as to who you feel empathy for. So like all you're doing being born into a low socioeconomic level is getting training in. This is a world that has a lot of bad stuff going on and you got no control and no predictability and that's stressful as hell. And your brain development is going to pay the price for that even before you're born while you're still a fetus. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's really an argument for a lot more social support, which is something that we talk about here also a lot. Um, on the podcast, but yeah, it's interesting that it's even in in cultures where there's universal healthcare and things like that. It yeah. should be emphasized, you know, yeah. poverty is a predictor of poor health in every westernized culture ever looked at, mm -hmm. but the place where it's the worst is here in the United States, where it's its steepest, where we don't have health insurance, we don't have the safety nets, and but still go and look at like those wonderful utopian Scandinavians. And even they have a subtle gradient between poverty and health that you find there. But yeah, we got the worst one out there. And that's been the case for four decades and getting worse in the United States year by year as inequality gets worse. Yeah, that's something fascinating in behaves. Uh, I, you know, what Happen, what you talk about inequality and how that affects people, you know, as far as our uh, even aggression and different things like that, perceived inequality. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, what you see, it's the same, you know, inequality and poor health, inequality and crime and violence, inequality and aggression of the displacing sort, taking it out on somebody weaker and smaller. What you see in all those cases is um, poverty is a predictor of more of all of those bad things. But then you look more closely, and it's not so much being poor as feeling poor. Not your objective socioeconomic status, but your subjective. And really interesting studies where you basically say to somebody, you know, when you think of other people, how are you doing compared to them? What's your subjective sense of your status in society? And it turns out that's at least as good of a predictor of what your health profile is going to be like as your objective socioeconomic side. It's not being poor 
It's feeling poor. And then you get the really informative finding, which is not even your objective or subjective socioeconomic status. It's how much inequality are you surrounded by? Mm. It's not being poor. It's not feeling poor. It's feeling poor because you are surrounded by plenty. How often Mm. is your nose being rubbed in it? And that's Mm. the real predictor. Because in a world in which nobody has much, everybody is equal, in a world of a very steep socioeconomic gradient, the most pertinent thing is you can see every single day who's got all the stuff that you don't have. And it's the comparative aspects. It's not being poor, it's feeling poor, and it's feeling poorer than everybody around you. That's the thing that drives poor health. Uh, displacement, aggression, crime, all that, you know, in a world in which people tend to not have a whole lot of peers of equal status in a world of like enormous inequality, that's a world that's less healthy and less kind and meaner and more prone towards crime and with less empathy. It's funny, my brain always jumps to like, what are the takeaways? How, what can we learn from this? What are we going to do from this? And it's like, I just like think like, Stop watching TV shows about, I mean, I don't know, like all the TV shows about, you know, Uber, Uber. Don't don't watch like Architectural Digest, like wel- celebrities welcoming you to their home. Yeah, the <laughs> lifestyles of the, yeah, because what it mostly communicates, I mean, you know, a thousand years ago, if you were not well off, you were able to look around like your mud hut village in medieval Europe and see, whoa, those folks have more goats than me, and that's not fair. These days, a car can pass you on the freeway, and because it's like a $100,000 Tesla or something, you never even see the face of the person, and you can feel subordinated. You can find out about how, like, Jeff Bezos is living his life, and you can feel less successful. You could go online and see all the really like fancy, expensive birthday parties everybody else in your middle school is having, and you could feel worse about yourself. What we're able to now is feel rotten comparatively with like so much more of the world than back when, when your neighbor had like two cows and you only had one. Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcast right after this break. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Coe, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. 
Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you you listen to your podcasts. So as you talk about all of this, one of the my hopes in like kind of bringing you on the podcast was just help us understand that there's so much uh, going into our behavior, our kids' behavior, all of these things that we we have no control over. And in determined you talk about the idea that, you know, you you questions are most people, the vast majority of people's assumptions about our own personal choice and willpower. What have you come to believe about our choices? Well, I'm kind of out on the lunatic fringe on this. Um, you talk to most brain scientists, biologists, and they think we have a lot less free will than the average person thinks. Um, and that's fine. Um, but I happen to be way out on the extreme in that I think we have no free will whatsoever. I think it is a complete myth because when you look at how you became the person you are right now, all it is is the outcome of all that biology stuff you had no control over and this interaction with all that environmental stuff that you had no control over. And when you really look at the nuts and bolts about how that stuff works, this neuron one second ago, this morning's hormones, this fetal life, all of that going back, you look at it and there's not a spot in there where you can insert in our everyday folk intuition as to what free will is because that folk intuition requires that something works there like nothing that science explains. Um, it requires you to invoke something bordering on the edge of magic. Like the idea that there's something that's separate from everything else that is making a choice. Yeah, that there's a me in there that somehow, you know, isn't made of that like neuron brain yuck stuff and is somehow separate of it. And, you know, it could it could get advice from your brain and it could try to like read the newspaper every day and make sure it sees the scientists reported today kind of thing and skim the articles. So now you're a little bit up to date on recent brain science, but then the me that's inside there that's made out of some sort of magical stuff is the thing that makes a decision. There's no me in there that's separate of all of the biology that was made of what came a second ago and a minute ago and a lifetime ago. Yeah, and everything is 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 within the context of an environment of choice of of different 
things arising. You know, it's really interesting, Robert, as I've been talking about this, my husband has been talking about the idea of free will. It's kind of in your camp, I think. He's he's a, a listener oh, blah, blah, of, um, dang it, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, um, the podcaster. But anyway, you know, it's very much, and I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with like the, the Buddhist teachings of no self and things like that. So for me, I come from sort of that point of view. And I, I really feel like I, I very much, you know, the understand like that concept of no self, like there's no separate self aside from, you know, if you take away the elements of your brain or your context, your upbringing, all those things like that, there's nothing that's separate from all of that. It's, but there is this sense, but the teacher, you know, the teacher I consider sort of my main teacher, the Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, who died a few years ago, um, would talk about the idea that both, you know, in the ultimate dimension, there is no self, right? There, you know, there's no separation, no barrier between me and you. There's no space where my body ends and the world begins, like, and you get down to a you know microscopic level, there's there's the idea of separation is really an illusion. And and I, I completely understand that. But yet at the same time, this idea of no self and a sense of self in the sort of what he would call the historic dimension, or you might say the sort of like dimension that we're working with in day-to-day life where we have to, you know, pay taxes and go into Starbucks and get coffee and things like that. There is a a sense of self, right? Then both are true kind of at the same time. I guess like as I've been thinking about this idea, you know, I feel like in some ways the idea of framing it in some ways as free will feels like very um, inflammatory to me. And like that in some ways it's, there are choices. Like I understand that there are choices that we make, but there's nothing that, no choice that can be made that's outside of uh, the context of you know, our continuation and our history and our biology and our conditioning and our influences and all of those things. So there's nothing that can be kind of outside of that. Is, would you think of that as like a kind exactly. of correct understanding of what you're trying to say? Exactly. There's there's nothing other than that because that's what we're made of. And if people sort of are resistant to that idea, and almost everybody is, Philosophers, for example, 95% of philosophers uh, believe in free will amid them believing that there's things like atoms and brain cells and science exists and that sort of thing. Nonetheless, they are, quote, compatibilists who somehow think that all of that, like, biological stuff that we're made of, nonetheless is compatible with a free will that's made of a me that's separate of all of that stuff. Yeah, it's very, very like hard for people to accept that. But, you know, just as one example, there's a type of biochemical manipulation you could do to the brain where you change what's called a second messenger cascade inside neurons. And as a result, one part of the brain has a firing rate of neurons having action potentials. And as a result, focus is better. What have you just done? You've just had some coffee with caffeine in it. And as a result of that, caffeine interacting with this biochemical, your brain works differently. You're a more alert person. You're, you're a different person in subtle ways than you were without that biological intervention. 
Like even on that level, that's a sign every single day of the machineness that's going on just underneath the surface. Do you find that this idea? Um, I I find in some ways the dis- discussing this idea as and framing it as kind of a lack of free will. It's kind of a dangerous idea because I think that it could be discouraging for people to to understand it incompletely and. But I wonder if now that you have kind of wrestled with this idea enough to write this giant book about it, um, does it give you more compassion for yourself and for others as you move about the world? Yeah, absolutely. And rather than it being discouraging, I think it's a great thing if people stop believing in free will. How come? Um, Well, everyone immediately goes, oh, my God, we're just all going to run amok. A lot of very good science shows we're not likely to. Oh my God, we're just going to have murderers running around on the streets. No, it is possible to construct a society in which dangerous people do not endanger other people and you don't have to invoke blame and punishment and bad souls and things like that. Oh my God, if there's no free will, nothing could ever change. No, things change dramatically. It's simply not that we choose to change but we are changed by circumstance. Okay, so all of those worries don't exist. And in actuality, it's great news. And why do we know this? Because look at the history of us, time and again, figuring out some domain where it turned out there wasn't free will, where we subtracted a sense of responsibility out of something that went on in the world around us. And what happened every single one of those times- the world became a much better place. At one point, about, I don't know, 400 years ago, we figured out that like horrible lightning storms that destroys everyone's crops are not caused by old ladies with no teeth who live alone on the edge of your hamlet, that there's no such thing as witches causing witchcraft that controls the weather. People are not responsible for the weather, so don't burn them at the stake. And it's a better world since we stopped doing that sort of thing. And then, I don't know, about two centuries ago, we figured out that epileptic seizures are not a sign of demonic possession. No, this is not someone who chose to get into bed with Satan, and this is evidence of it. And you don't burn them at the stake either. And like, it's a much better world that we figured out instead that this is not satanic possession. It's screwy potassium channels in neurons in one part of your brain. And then like 50 years ago, we figured out schizophrenia is a neurochemical disorder. It's not caused by mothers who in some sort of bizarre Freudian toxicity secretly unconsciously hate their child. And then about 20 years ago, we figured out kids who have trouble learning to read are not lazy and unmotivated. They've got some screwy circuitry in one part of their cortex, and they have this thing called dyslexia. And in every single one of these steps, we've subtracted free will and responsibility out of it. And at every one of those steps, not only has the roof not fallen in, it's become a much more humane world. It's really good these days that we're able to tell somebody that their child has dyslexia and here's the sort of training that's needed for them to have an easier time learning to read rather than them growing up and taking into adulthood the belief that they are lazy and unmotivated. And the same thing with any one of these. 
that there are gene variants that you have no control over whatsoever having to do with a receptor for a hormone called leptin. And if you've got a lousy version of that receptor, you're not having trouble with self-discipline. You don't secretly hate yourself. And nonetheless, you are going to be obese because your brain doesn't get signals saying that you're full. And what we do instead is have a society where that's one of the most stigmatized things Mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. And people grow up hating themselves because why can't I show some of the self-discipline? It's yet another domain in which, oh, we aren't responsible for that. That was due to biology outside our control. And every one of those steps, it becomes a much nicer planet to live on. I I accept that argument. I think it's well stated. <laughs> Robert, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I really enjoy your thinking and your writing, and I like how it challenges me. And I and I really, really appreciate you coming on the Mindful Parenting Podcast. Robert's new book, Robert Sapolsky's new book, Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. Is there any Anything you want to leave the listener with or or any place you want to send them to if they're curious about diving in more? Oh, I guess the the book is agonizingly long, but it's written <laughs> it's written for people who are not scientists, so hopefully accessible. And like I'm not trying to convince anybody that there's no free will. I'm just trying to convince people that there's so much less free will than is normally mm-hmm. the case that we really have to run things differently. We have a world in which we think it's okay to treat some people way better than average for reasons they had nothing to do with, and other people way worse than average. And then when we're done with that, we give them nonsense about how this is a just world and people get what they deserve, that we have earned the lives we have. So like, to any extent that people can stop thinking this way, I think this will make things better for everyone. Yeah, yeah. I I think I agree. And and yes, there's a there's a lot of brain science in this book, dear reader, but the footnotes are, are wonderful. I love your footnotes. Somebody's really into musical theater, huh? Too. Uh, yes, my <laughs> my wife is a musical theater director, so unavoidably there are references to musicals obscurely and subtly in some cases throughout the book. Yeah, this has got a great sense of humor in that. I love it. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time and for for taking the time to talk to us. I, I really, really appreciate it. Great. Well, thanks for having me on. This was fun. Wow, right? There's so much to learn here from Robert. I feel it was such an honor to talk to him thinking about you know, why do we behave the way we do? Why do our kids behave the way we do? And all of these factors that are beyond our control. And I think that's really interesting so that we can start to shift away from blaming ourselves, et cetera. So, and and that whole frontal cortex development in parenting, oh my goodness, you know, gosh, that we wish it developed a little sooner sometimes, right? Hey, if you like this episode, please help share it around tell, you know, your course would be great if you tell social media and your friends and tag me and things like that. But if maybe just tell one friend, that'd be great. Let one friend know what a cool episode it was and tell them to, of course, subscribe and, and so they get all the episodes in their inbox. And that would be amazing. 
And hey, I'm wishing you a great week. I'm so glad you were here to enjoy this conversation. It was really, really wonderful. And and I hope you're getting something out of it that's going to enhance your life and benefit you and your family. And so I will be back talking to you real soon. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. And I'll talk to you soon. Namaste. I'd say definitely do it. It's really helpful. It will change your relationship with your kids for the better. It will help you communicate better. And just, I'd say communicate better as a person, as a wife, as a spouse. It's been really a positive influence in our lives. So definitely do it. I'd say definitely do it. It's so worth it. The money really is inconsequential when you get so much benefit from being a better parent to your children and feeling like you're connecting more with them and not feeling like you're yelling all the time or you're like, why isn't things working? I would say definitely do it. It's so, so worth it. It'll change you. No matter what age someone's child is, it's a great opportunity for personal growth and it's a great investment in someone's family. I'm very thankful I had this. You can continue in your old habits that aren't working or you can learn some new tools and gain some perspective to shift everything in your parenting. Are you frustrated by parenting? Do you listen to the experts and try all the tips and strategies, but you're just not seeing the results that you want? Or are you lost as to where to start? Does it all seem so overwhelming with too much to learn? Are you yearning for a community of people who get it? who also don't want to threaten and punish to create cooperation? Hi, I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and if you answered yes to any of these questions, I want you to seriously consider the Mindful Parenting membership. You'll be joining hundreds of members who have discovered the path of mindful parenting and now have confidence and clarity in their parenting. This isn't just another parenting class. This is an opportunity to really discover your unique, lasting relationship with your children, but with yourself. It will translate into lasting, connected relationships, not only with your children, but your partner too. Let me change your life. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com to add your name to the waitlist, so you will be the first to be notified when I open the membership for enrollment. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. mindfulparentingcourse.com. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us, 